Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Carlos Alcaraz has capped off a remarkable, unforgettable 2022 that saw a visceral rise to the elite ranks of the game. He's capped it off with the U.S. Open title. And he's become world number one at 19 years old, the youngest ever to do so. What a story this was. Uh, congratulations to Carlitos and his fans. He beats Kasparud in four sets in the final. Excellent match. Congratulations to Casper as well. Uh, it was it was uh, it was tremendous and uh, a great U.S. Open Monday after a major. You gotta love it. I always love it. Uh, gonna get into Alcaraz's point shortening. You know his efficient and ruthless point shortening in this match. Um, after I get into some major themes about his season and his run. Uh, talking about his net play and the way he went about attacking uh, Rude's different return strategies. Uh, some really, really great stuff uh, in this four-set victory. But, uh, you know, I guess what's nice about this is you can't really... You can't really take anything away from Alcaraz at this point. You can't say that anything is manufactured, that the hype doesn't come from a place of genuine deservedness. Because it's not really any, any, it's not about projection anymore. It's not really about, I think Carlos Alcaraz or anyone thinks Carlos Alcaraz will be an all time great. You know, it, it's more so that at this time he is. Meaning he's not a finished product. He's won one major. He, you know, if he retired today, he wouldn't even be in the Hall of Fame. But trajectory-wise, he has put himself on an all-time pace. Youngest ever to become number one. Youngest to win a major since Nadal. Youngest to win the U.S. Open since Pete Sampras. This is the kind of company that he finds himself in. If you run faster than everyone, you hit the ball harder than pretty much everyone, you're comfortable in all areas of the court, you possess a high competency in every necessary shot, you have excellent focus, effort, and attitude. What are we missing here? Nothing. That's generational. That's rare. That's special. 
And he's not a finished product, but he's a U.S. Open champion. So let's zoom out a little bit. I want to talk about some things first that were said after the match, um, which kind of gets into the concerns coming in to this event for Carlos Alcaraz and how he addressed those concerns. The reason, and, and those concerns were clearly shared by both myself and his team. Uh, but but just to rehash, you know, what, what I was saying coming in is that he uh, he's, doesn't look right mentally because he's not playing big points well. He has the tennis, and I really did feel like he had the tennis to win the U.S. Open, that his best level might be better than anyone's, probably would be better than anyone's. But it just felt like the pressure was getting to him. Wasn't playing big points well. Wasn't delivering under pressure. He was making mistakes when the scoreboards suggested that it was the more the most you know crucial moments. So uh, this is what was said after the match. I thought it was illuminating. Carlito said, "In Montreal and in Cincinnati, I lost the joy a little bit. I felt the pressure. I couldn't smile on the court, which I'm doing every match, every tournament. I came here just to enjoy, you know, to smile on the court, to enjoy playing tennis. I love playing tennis, of course. I would say if I smile, if I have fun out there, I saw my best level." my best tennis. Here's what Juan Carlos Ferrero, his coach said. He said, one of the things that I talked to him uh, about after Cincinnati, that he may be losing a little bit of his happiness on the court, maybe worrying about numbers and tournaments and not about his game. Yeah, he was stressed. He didn't look right. Well, uh, he relaxed. He made an adjustment. He was open to that adjustment. And he had it in him to, you know, be able to try to shift his mentality, which is not an easy thing to do because uh, every tennis player tries to detach themselves from the outcome to try to have a little fun. It, it just helps people compete better, uh, but it's not easy to do. But he, you know, for the most part, he did it. There's no doubt about that. The second thing involved is his fitness. Carlos Alcaraz spent the most time on court of any major champion uh, in the in recorded history. Now, time on court, you know, match time was not always kept as a stat. Uh, so it, this only goes back so far. But since they've been keeping that as a stat, Kevin Anderson at Wimbledon in 2018 had the record. Obviously, he didn't win that event. Uh, but Alcaraz has now taken over as the player who spent the most time on court in a in a single event. And it makes me want to go back to the beginning of the season and remember what Carlitos um did in January in December in the off season, the decisions he made and uh then what he said about it in March. So here's what he said about it in March. He said my team and I know how important it is to be strong physically. It was one thing we knew I had to improve a lot. It was a great focus during preseason. I am really happy. It gives me more confidence. I have more of a chance to keep my level high during three or four hour matches against the best players. I enjoy the gym. I have been concentrating on every part of the body. I concentrate 100% on the work. My biggest focus is the legs. This is very important. So Alcaraz 
enjoys the gym, values the gym. And there's no way he could have won the U.S. Open if that wasn't the case. And remember the scheduling decisions that were made before the Australian Open. Carlos Alcaraz did not play ATP Cup. He did not play Adelaide. He did not play Sydney. He did not play Melbourne. No. What did he do? He said, you know what? I'm not ready to play tennis in 2022 yet. I need to spend more time lifting. I need more time in the gym. The results were, you know, obviously they can be seen very, very visibly. Um, but I just go back to that and I think, what, was he a psychic? Did he know? Did he know that in order for him to win his first major, he was going to have to play a five-setter in the fourth round, the quarterfinal, and the semifinal? Did he know that? Because it, it seems like almost like he had a psychic power here. So I wanted to share those things um, and, you know, just reflect on some of the things Alcaraz have said, some of the things that have positioned him to uh, to be in this moment. But on the same topic of fitness and legs, you know my policy with that, I always try to look at a player and try to evaluate whether or not, whether or not they're feeling uh, fatigued and not come into the match with my mind already made up about whether or not they're going to be fatigued. Well, in this match, I got to say, even in the first set, even in the first set, uh, throughout the second, parts of the third, I think by the fourth, it started to, uh, he started to get even stronger, which, which kind of happened uh, in the last match also. Uh, I think a testament to, I guess, kind of adrenaline kicking in at, at the highest levels there. But, um, you know, or a second wind. But uh, I thought fatigue was a factor in this match. Which ultimately made this all the more impressive. I thought Casper Ruud played well. I thought Carlos Alcaraz was at 80% strength. Still won. Still won. And that's very, very impressive. Uh, 80%, kind of arbitrary, kind of a made-up number. I understand that. But let me tell you what I saw. Uh, first of all, I saw energy conservation in return games, especially in the first set and the second set, um, for sure, where where I saw the effort level and the, the mental and physical engagement. Uh, I saw Alcaraz pull back in that regard on, on return games, and uh, I had never really seen him do that in my life before. He's the kind of guy, Alcaraz is the kind of guy who, even if he's down 40 love, will still run uh, 30 feet across the court to go for a ball that he has very little chance at even getting. You know, that's the way he plays. He has this very kind of, I don't know, like balls to the wall kind of mentality all the time. And this was the first time I've seen him pull back. And to me, that means that he felt tired, that he was feeling it. Then there was a, a certain desperation when it came to point shortening. He did not want to engage in rallies really until the end of the third set. You know, he, he picked his spots. There were some moments where I think he realized, okay, this is a huge point in the match. I need to push myself and play play some rallies. But whenever, you know, it wasn't necessary, he was trying to keep the points as short as humanly possible. 
And, you know, he ended up playing a, a pretty sloppy set, you know, in the second set as a result where, you know, he, he did make a lot of mistakes and then he kind of let the set go towards the end, wasn't very engaged. Um, and, and that's kind of the trade-off. But ultimately what my big takeaway here is it's that in a situation like this where Alcaraz didn't really trust his legs, knew he had to play point-shortening tennis, he had the skills to do it. He had the ability to do it. He can do it. And uh, although he possesses an incredible level of physicality, he doesn't necessarily need it to win. He has other options, other ways. And, and that is a characteristic of a champion. There's no doubt about that. So uh, that's kind of what I want to dig into. You know, Alcaraz's skill set saving his legs. So I just didn't think his legs were fully, fully there in this match. And, you know, he was still fast. He was still quick. Just a little bit less so. And he did not want to go long. He did not want to play rallies. Uh, and he did not want to waste any energy on return games. So that was very, very clear. So let's get into it. Uh, the biggest thing was net rushing. You know, if you would have told me before the match that Alcaraz was going to be very desperate to end points quickly, I would have said, ooh, that's trouble. He's probably going to make a lot of ground stroke errors going way too big. But but he, he didn't really do that. You know, he was relatively patient. Uh, he was able to find short balls quickly and early capitalize on them right away by moving forward, not allowing Alcaraz, sorry, not allowing Rude to neutralize and extend rallies with with his defense or with his movement uh, because Carlitos was going to decide that thing by coming forward. You know, coming forward is is a way to end the point. Um, you, you're, you're basically going to get a finish when you move forward. So... That was his approach. His approach was not, I'm going to hit my forehands even bigger, even harder, even closer to the lines. Because if if that was what he turned to, he would have probably just made a bunch of unforced errors and lost. But instead, he uh, he had a very, very precise game plan. Let's go to the film. So the one... The one thing he was doing more than anything was uh, not allowing Rude to slice his backhand, which is something I um, I highlighted before the match in the preview. He was absolutely ruthless in his implementation of this strategy. It looked a lot like this. So uh, here's one all game. This was the only break of serve in the first set. And... Here's a forehand down the line, big from Rude. Alcaraz is moving laterally to hit this backhand, which is going to go cross-court. There's no forward momentum for Alcaraz, um, but he's going to see at a certain point that Rude is going to slice. And as soon as he sees that, he's going to charge forward. Now, since this backhand wasn't really an approach shot, it was really a backhand cross-court from the baseline, and then 
uh, a sneak forward. It wasn't an approach shot. Alcaraz didn't know he was coming forward until the ball left his strings and he realized it was quality and that Rude was going to have to slice. Um, but as soon as that happened, Alcaraz is going to come forward here. And I think Rude sees him. Rude hits a good slice down the line. But Alcaraz's speed is actually a, a, a real key here. He's able to close the net, get inside the service line, despite breaking to, to close the net, you know, rather late and hitting the ground stroke from behind the baseline. He's still able to get close enough and make this lunging volley, which he finishes hard cross court. He does it again here in this incredibly important 5-6 game in the third set at Deuce, where Rude is uh, going to hit this big forehand. I'm not sure if this is a return or not. I forget. Uh, but he, he's outside the singles line once again. So the pattern here for Alcaraz is pull Rude off the court on the forehand side, then go to the backhand and come in. So he does it here. And now he's going to hit... Uh, by the way, Rude crushed this forehand. It was an enormous forehand. And by the way, it was a return of serve because you can see the speed gun go from 110 miles per hour to 97 miles per hour. So uh, Rude hits a huge return, and Alcaraz basically shock absorbs it and hits a nothing, a nothing backhand right through the middle of the court. This isn't an approach shot. This is just a backhand middle of the court. But because Rude... Shows his hand right here. He takes his left hand. He takes his left hand. Um, and he pulls it up to hold the neck of the racket. And as soon as Alcaraz sees that, green light, dart forward. You know, a, a two-handed backhand, you can't disguise the slice. Now, Dimitrov can disguise the slice. Federer can disguise the slice. If you have a two-hander, good luck with that. There's not going to be any disguise there. So Alcaraz is taking advantage of that. So this backhand goes middle. He recognizes the slice. He darts forward. Alcar uh, Rude hits this chip, and he's going to uh, chip it kind of slow and short. He's going to try to you know bounce this bef at Alcaraz's feet. But look at Alcaraz's speed. I mean, oh my God, did he close the net fast? How do you go from moving backwards on this backhand to getting this close to the net for the for the volley? That is using his athleticism in a way that, dare I say, we've rarely seen speed around a tennis court used. You know, where, where have we seen this speed used to close and close the net uh, this effectively? And this impressively. It's very, very rare. So that was part of the point shortening. So at the net, Alcaraz was um, 34 of 45 for the match. A tremendous percentage. Uh, there were some missed volleys in there. I don't think Rude passed him very much at all. Now, I remember there was one serve and volley. It was in that 5-6 game where Rude moved back and hit a forehand winner cross court on the return. That's one of the only times that I can really remember Alcaraz getting passed. Uh, you know, for the most part, it was missed difficult volleys or Alcaraz um, winning the point. So Rude was not able to come up with a lot of passes. Alcaraz wasn't giving Rude looks at forehands. 
You know, he, he was making him come up with backhands, and it's it's difficult for Rude, as we'll kind of get into. Um, the return strategies for Casper were once again problematic, and this enabled Alcaraz to avoid rallies on serve uh, by attacking the first ball in a plethora of, of ways, whether it be going at the plus one forehand and coming forward behind that or serve plus drop shot, which we saw sometimes, or serve and volley. He had all of these different, you know, he had array and an array of options to try to attack the rude return. And rude was adjusting the sliders on return a lot too. And he never really found one that worked. Um, so let's kind of go through those things. The first option uh, was, actually, this was more the second option. You know, Rude started standing back in this third set. And Alcaraz sometimes went to the Miami play, which is when Rude is standing back, serve and volley to his backhand. And he did it on one of the most important points of the match here. Set point for Rude to take a two sets to one lead. And he goes to the backhand. And he gets an easy as pie volley, exactly the volley he was asking for. Now Alcaraz is is probably not probably almost definitely a little bit nervous here because he doesn't hit his regular drop volley, and instead volleys pretty deep in the court, not super deep but pretty deep. And Rude actually gets to this and almost flicks the lob over Alcaraz's head. Carlitos has to leap up and use his incredible vertical to uh, reach this overhead, which he puts away and saves the set point. So there's uh, there's option one on the serve and volley. Now, uh, he, Alcaraz also served and volleyed off of Rude's chip return, which is the return he went to when he stood in up on the baseline. I don't have a screen grab for that, but but he definitely did that. And that's, by the way, the return that Alcar uh, that Rude used for most of the match. However, uh, Rude standing back did it was, in my opinion, the, the more effective return. And, you know, standing back and driving, taking fuller swings. The problem was, too often, he did not get enough depth. I bring you the other set point, the first set point, where Alcaraz served down the tee, Rude hit a forehand return, it dropped short in the box, in the service box. Alcaraz, who has such good forward movement, pounced on the plus one ball, hit that first forehand to the Rude backhand, approach, Rude hit one of his better backhand passing shots here. He did everything he could. He just doesn't have the strength to really hit this with enough pace to get it past Alcaraz. But he he actually hit it a shot that would have landed just inside the sideline. And crucially, he didn't slice. You know, there were a lot of times where Rude gave himself no chance on the passing shot because he sliced. Um, but in this case, he did the best he could. Didn't matter. Alcaraz stretch forehand volley, put it away, short angle. So those were both set points saved. Did they get into rallies? No. No, they didn't. Notice that. Why? 
because Alcaraz is attacking the rude return. This was the common theme in this match. I mentioned the forehand block from Rude. I found it to be very, very ineffective uh, because Alcaraz, you know, he has a couple things. First of all, what I just mentioned, the movement into the court. So here at 2-1, and and this is kind of a bad example. I don't like to use examples like this because Rude ended up breaking serve. But first point of the game here, in this game, he broke serve. Uh, Rude hits a very strong, low, biting forehand block return. Seriously, it's a, it's a great one. It really is good. Uh, it doesn't float. It stays low. Um, and that's kind of what you ask for. And, it, it you know, it lands short in the court, but usually that's not a problem as long as you get it really, really low. But Alcaraz moves up to it to kind of uh, reach it at a higher contact point, and he takes time away. So Rude has trouble recovering to the middle here because Alcaraz just took uh, his time away and Alcaraz gets so much racket head acceleration and therefore topspin on the forehand that from a low contact point and inside the baseline, he has no trouble getting that ball up and down quickly because of the topspin uh, and, and hitting a forehand winner on this plus one ball. He has no problem doing that. So between all of the comfortable plus one forehands that Alcaraz hit on the rude chip forehand returns and the serve and volleys off of the rude chip forehand returns. It just wasn't uh, a great return for him. Um, and and that that's the return he was going to when he stood in. The, the backhand side was a little bit better. Um, but in reality... I didn't feel that Rude was able to do on return what he had to do. What he had to do was hit uh, a good enough return where it neutralized the Alcaraz plus one, kept him away from the ser- and kept him away from the serve and volley, uh, and and therefore get into the point. You know, Rude just I'm not asking Rude to be offensive. Um, I'm not saying that he didn't get enough in play because he did get a decent amount in play, but he he didn't do well enough on the return to get into points. Uh, He was just getting attacked uh, right away. Uh, For Alcaraz, far more often, he was able to deliver uh, quality returns that rushed Rude's plus one forehand. Because, you know, Casper is trying to do the same thing. Casper's trying to trying to off of his serve, uh, off of his, the third shot of the rally. If the serve isn't good enough to finish, he wants to immediately take full control of the point with his first forehand. So you know the goal is to hit a good enough return to rush that forehand. It's got to be deep enough and it's got to be fast enough. And far more often, Alcaraz was able to do that. Uh, why? Because he was standing. I don't have his return position. He he wasn't standing as far back. And he was driving. He wasn't blocking. So here's an example, very important in the third set tie break, uh, where Rude uh, went down a mini break here, and uh, he hits a, a wide serve, and Alcaraz is going to drive through this forehand return, even though he's stretched out a little bit, and he gets a lot of pace on it, and it's deep, and it's hard, 
and Rude has to try to use his quick footwork to get himself in the right position, doesn't quite do so, catches it late, and it doesn't even go close to landing in the court. That's the return. That hard drive return that's going to rush the server on their third shot. Alcaraz has it. Rude doesn't. I felt that was one of the biggest, if not the biggest difference in the match. And I said coming into the match that Rude was going to need to win the uh, returns in play battle. He did not do that. He uh, he lost it by 2%. Now, unfortunately, I don't get that stat for first serves. I would bet that Rude was actually better on second serves, but Alcaraz was better on first serves. And, and with Rude chipping... And not hitting aggressive returns, he should win. And having what we thought was the better serve, I'll get to this in a second. That got a little bit complicated. Um, you know, with him chipping the returns, that's the safest form of return. You know that that means you're really looking to get a ton in play. And he still got less returns in play in total by Alcaraz, but really was negligible. 73% in play, 75% in play for, for Alcaraz. But uh, it was the quality where, where Rude was lacking. Uh, let's also talk when we're on the, you know, the same topic. Remember what the theme is here. Alcaraz skills saving his legs. How about the huge serving in the fourth set? I can't say enough. Good serving in the third set as well in the end there. Uh, but nothing compared to what we saw in the fourth set. And I was, I guess while I was watching, I was kind of wondering. Um, I was like, is this a metaphor? Are we seeing a glimpse of the future? Is Carlos Alcaraz in his first major final and to winning his first major title, is he showing us what it's going to look like for the next decade plus? With this serving performance in the fourth set. Alcaraz goes up a break in the fourth. And, uh, or actually, no, it was really from two all. From two all in the fourth set, Alcaraz basically served Rude off the court. I can't believe I'm saying that. I didn't think I'd say that. I didn't think that would be a part of this Monday match analysis. Didn't think that sentence would leave my mouth. If anything, I, I thought I'd say it about Rude. Because because Rude, over the years, has uh, continuously improved a first serve that has become, at this point, one of the most underrated in tennis. But uh, Alcaraz caught fire. You know, we know he has the pace on the first serve, but rarely do you see him get in such a rhythm in terms of the percentage and the spot serving. He hit, in his last three service games... Over a span of 17 total points, he hit eight unreturned serves. For the match, he uh, he out-aced Kasparud. Let me get the number here, which I did not really expect. Uh, and it wasn't close. 14-4, to four, Carlos Alcaraz out-aced Kasparud. 14-4. to four. Um, How big was the serving in that fourth set. Uh what a what a relief if his legs were feeling it, if he if he started to get tense, if he started to get nervous, what a relief to get so much help off of that shot. 
And, um, you know, Alcaraz didn't feel too much. You know, there, there really wasn't a lot of finish line issues there, which I'm not all that surprised about. And, and some people were kind of comparing it this final to the uh, Team Zverev final in 2020. And uh, I saw on social media um, people saying, wow, like this is so much better than they did. And yes, the quality here was so much better. But I think a little unfair to compare the two. And frankly, I'm not surprised that Rudin Alcaraz handled it better than Team and Zverev. And that's not because I think that they are, you know, better mentally, even though, even though I think they are. Um, I, w- I won't lump Team in there, but definitely compared to Zverev. But, but, but here's what I will say. Here's why I don't think that's fair to Team and Zverev. Team was grinding away for a decade decade to get to that point to play that match I mean he was 27 years old before he finally got to the point where he was in a major final against a player who he was you know had the level to beat right could you imagine working at something for a decade and and here it is on your racket you you go try you try to do it you hit a second serve all right and then for for Zverev right? For Zverev, it's, you know, coming up in 2018, being anointed next, uh, not, you know, not to the level of Carlos Alcaraz, but, but, but he kind of was, you know, uh, it was more, uh, it just wasn't really, you know, it didn't play out like, uh, like it did with Alcaraz. Um, I, I didn't ha- I my channel hadn't really started at the time, so I, I wasn't really I don't know, I can't really lump myself in there. Um anyway. Uh you know, Zverev had the weight of all of this constant expectation of hey, like you should be winning majors, man. You should be winning majors, man. You should be winning majors. He dealt with that for you know, twenty eighteen and twenty twenty, you know, Two, two years, but really more like three years. And I don't know why I'm saying 18, because it was 17 where he was already miraculous and the expectations were, were massive. So, you know, Zverev, three years of people piling on the expectation. Team, not so much expectation, but 10 years of work. These guys, they just got here. Since when was Kasparud supposed to contend for major titles? Roland Garros this summer. That was the first major we came into thinking, hey, Kasparud, uh, he's a contender. Nope. And then he ended up making the final. Same thing for Carlos Alcaraz. Didn't think he had a shot in Australia. He didn't think he had a shot in Australia. He wasn't thinking about winning a major title. They just got here. It takes time for pressure to build. And luckily for these two, uh, three months is not a lot of time. And they were able to handle this moment and play a great match. Uh, Before I kind of wrap up here, I do want to kind of zoom in on the third set because uh, it it very did, you know, it was very close to, uh, 
turning in in Rude's favor. I have already shown you both set points, but let's talk about that tiebreak a little bit, and, and let's talk about the match a little bit chronologically, just to cover bases. Uh, first set, early break of serve for Alcaraz. Uh, he he was really uh, clinical on serve though with his with his first strike tennis. Uh, Rude was blocking his returns that entire set, um, and Alcaraz was eating it up, eating it up. Um, In the second set, I mentioned Alcaraz played a, a somewhat sloppy set. Uh, Rude had a, but but there were you know credit to Casper also. Alcaraz had two break points in this set in two separate games, including one crucial one at two all, and he hit perfect first serves on both occasions. Two great you know well earned service winners by Rude on both break points faced. Um, Rude wins the uh, the second set, and then in the third set, um, Alcaraz escapes from fifteen thirty down at three four with some. Again, these aren't rallies. You know, we're rarely seeing rallies, right? Fifteen thirty at three four, I get a serve plus forehand inside out winner, a service winner down the tee, and a serve uh, plus forehand inside out forced error. Rude neutralized the backhand. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm going through this match. These rallies were uh, were not lengthy. Let me get you the rally length stats also. Um, let me get you that. It's going to take me a moment here. Um, all right, rallies 0 through 4 shots were 84 to 79 Alcaraz. Rallies 5 through 8 were 30 to 27 Alcaraz. Rallies 9 plus were 16 to 13 Rude. All right, so third set. Uh, this 5-6 game is incredible. It's unbelievable. Um, Rude hit some good returns in this game, in this 5-6 game where Alcaraz is serving to force a second set tiebreak, but he hit stunning forehands. And if Rude won this set, won the match, I would have been breaking down these forehands. Just, it was like a Rude forehand takeover. But he couldn't quite find enough. Not quite enough. Um, and a lot of that was, again, just... Uh, Quick strike tennis on the Alcaraz serve. Um, and net rushing from him. So I, I showed you the set points where Alcaraz ended up at the net on both occasions. Serve plus one uh, approach and a serve and volley. Uh, then he closes it out you know, with the serve plus a forehand inside out. And Rude netted a, a backhand slice where I believe Alcaraz was coming in um, and, and kind of threatening that. And then on add-in, serve um, plus forehand drop shot. Um, and then they end up in this uh, cat-and-mouse exchange where Rude, uh, Rude actually ends up hitting a drop volley. Alcaraz with amazing athleticism to get the lob up. Rude hits a tweener, and Alcaraz hits a smash winner. Uh, now, I just want to talk about the tiebreak real quick. Um, they played no rallies here. Actually, they played one. There was one rally. It was at Love One. It was backhand to backhand. Uh, Alcaraz with some patience, and and Rude ended up missing a backhand, which which did 
that was an outcome that I saw a couple of times where, you know, backhand and backhand and Rude was actually the first to miss. Um, so I, I still think Alcaraz has an advantage going backhand and backhand with Rude, even though Casper's improved it. But, um, I mean, it's all about serve and return from Alcaraz here. At one all, he hits a service winner. At one two with Rude serving, Alcaraz backs up, hits a heavy forehand inside out return with uh, to the Rude backhand, which draws an error. Rude shanks that backhand, very deep return, and Alcaraz with the deep return position, and it works. Uh, then you have that forehand that I I showed you as an example, where Rude got rushed on the plus one forehand and missed it. Then you have it 4-1, a serve. Uh, Rude is standing deep. The return is too short. And Alcaraz crushes the plus one forehand cross court for a winner. Then you have a service winner from Alcaraz at 5-1. And then you have another uh, second serve where Rude is uh, rushed, catches the, the plus one forehand late, and makes an unforced error. There's literally one rally going past four shots in the third set tiebreak. Alcaraz is dominating with his serve and his return. Didn't have the legs to rally with Rude. Had the skills to win anyway. Um, that is it for the analysis portion of this. Uh, but before I sign off, uh, I do want to dedicate this uh, episode of Monday Match Analysis to uh, a really close friend of mine who um, I learned during this match had taken his own life in the... Um, and, and he was a really close childhood friend of mine who I had kind of fallen out of touch with as our lives moved separate ways. But I have a, a very heavy heart about it, still do. And I, uh, I want to dedicate this to him and use this time to uh, implore anyone who, who needs help, who is not okay. Uh, it is okay to not be okay. And especially men and young men. There is a, a terrible tendency um, of, of, you know, stigmatization when it comes to mental health and, and men are, are supposed to, nothing's ever supposed to bother them. And because of that, they don't um, communicate with the people who, who love them or, or the resources that are available uh, to help them. So um, it's dedicated to him and um i do want to say uh 988 in the united states is the suicide and crisis lifeline um so i apologize to end on a somber note but it was really really important to me that i included that hope you enjoyed everyone um steve flink interview coming up mailbag coming up don't forget to subscribe i will see you next time Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean a cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly 
Eye on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.